0: Acts 21, beginning of verse 37, this is God's word. And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? Who said, Canst thou speak Greek? Art not thou that Egyptian which before these days made an uproar and led us out into the wilderness four thousand men that were murderers? And Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city." And I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence. And he said... I am verily a man, which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gabaliel, and taught according to the perfect matter of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. And I persecuted this way unto death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women, as also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders, which uh, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound into Jerusalem for to be punished. And I came, and it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus, about noon suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me, and I fell upon unto the ground, and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light, and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise, and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all the things which are appointed for thee to do." And I, and I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. And one in Ananias, devout man, according to the law, and having a good report of all the Jews that which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked up upon him, and he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one. And shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And why, and now, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sin, calling on the name of the Lord. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance, and I saw him saying unto me, Make haste, and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and considering unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far thence unto the Gentiles." Let me tell you a story. I'm not going to do that. I just wanted to tell you those words, which uh, these words transport us to another time and to another place. And often when we tell stories or we begin a story like that, we are uh, telling a story that detail events in our own lives. And some are able to do this much readily than I am. I have very poor memory about events in my own life unless they are momentous occasions my recollections of the past are sketchy at best and only the truly uh, memorable or truly emotional occasions stand out and stick in my memory i sometimes wonder if paul was like this as well because this is an event this is a a story that really sticks out when paul tells his story to the people in jerusalem He doesn't tell them blow by blow everything that happened in his life. Instead, he chooses the most important parts. He skips over perhaps even the majority of his life to get to the events that fundamentally changed him. After all that fits with what he is doing here in his defense on the stairs, he is telling the people, the audience, the Jews, the story of why he stands before them in bonds. He speaks to the situation his audience finds themselves in. And he does so creating a connection between the, them and him in order to draw them into his story and to show them the path to God. The defense on the stairs uh, that Paul gives tells a familiar story, but he does but Paul does not mimic Luke's version of these events in chapter 9. It has a different audience, a different occasion, and a different purpose. It's a story that differs even from Paul's own retelling of the story uh, before King Agrippa, which he will do in a few chapters from now. The story has its own charm as it reflects Paul's passion and concern for his own countrymen. We feel a warmth emanating from it, but there is also a warning in it as well. I want us to look at this passage in terms of Paul's condition, conversion, and calling. His condition, his conversion, and his calling. Paul is headed to the fortress of Antonia. He may even be held aloft by the hands of the soldiers in order to keep the hands of the potentially riotous Jews from harming him. Somehow, Paul feels he must bring order to the chaos. In order to get a hearing, he must establish his credibility before both the Romans and the Jews, and that is how his speech begins. At the end of chapter 21, Paul addresses the Roman tribune who has rushed out to save him. At this point, this Roman tribute remains unnamed, but we do know his name because later he will write a letter uh, to the governor Felix, naming himself, in chapter 23, verse 26, Claudius Lysias. Paul somehow manages to get his attention before entering into the fortress and speaks. Look at verse 37. And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee who said, Canst thou speak Greek? Now, why does Paul want to interrupt their getting him to safety in order for him to address the crowds? Well, he knows that once they go into the fortress, none of the Jews are going to follow. Probably. The Jews understood that if they went under to a Gentile roof, they would become ceremonially unclean. You see this in the Pharisees and the religious leaders during the trial of Jesus. They refused to go into Pilate's house for this very reason. And so if he is to make a defense to his countrymen, he must do it immediately. And Paul probably, obviously, uses the common language of the time. He uses Greek. And this is what surprises the tribune. He says to the tribune, may I speak unto thee? And obviously he's speaking Greek because of what the tribune says. You can speak Greek? Now why does this surprise him? Probably because of where Paul was arrested. He is arrested in the midst of a Hebrew Aramaic speaking mob. And he, the fact that he can speak Greek seems surprising. And it also seems surprising based upon the tribune's uh, assumptions about who Paul is that you see in verse 38. Art not thou that Egyptian which before these days made an uproar? Previously, as Josephus records in his annals, there was an Egyptian who came up and stirred up a following and promised his followers that he would return to them on the Mount of Olives and lead them into Jerusalem. Now Josephus puts the number of these followers at about 30,000, and some commentators note uh, this discrepancy in numbers between 30,000 and 4,000 here, and they suggest that it might be a scribal error between the common uh, look of a Greek capital L and a Greek capital D. But others note that Josephus is suspicious in his exaggerated numbers. Paul addresses the tribune denying this allegation and giving the tribune his bona fides, his credentials for being able to address such a a group. Look at verse 39, Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. Paul uses his birth He is a Jew, he is one of the same nationality of those who are rebelling against him, and so he might be able to quell his uh, fellow countrymen, to get them to calm down. But he says that he is is from Cilicia, he is from Tarsus in Cilicia, he's not from uh, the radical revolutionary air of Jerusalem. He has a Gentile city as his place of birth, as his citizenship. And he intends to try to quell, or to silence, or to give in a defense that will alleviate the passions of the day, and to lower the tension. And the tribune seems to think it's worth a shot. Look at verse 40. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with his hand unto the people. Paul now is on his feet. He's no longer being held aloft and carried. He's still shackled, probably, but he's there able to stand on the stairs and address the crowd in their own language. When he, and when there was made a great silence, he spake to them in the Hebrew tongue. The commentators suppose that the word Hebrew here stands for the more specific speech of Aramaic. And while Paul is making this defense, it it may be unlikely that some of the Roman soldiers, and maybe even the Roman Tribune, would have understood this discourse. What the Roman Tribune does hear and does see convinces him to let Paul proceed because he sees the crowd, which has been riotous to the point of violence, now quiet and attentive. As Paul has made his defense to the Roman authorities, he now makes his defense to the Jewish authorities. Turning to the Jews, they hear their own language, and that tells them something. Look at verses one and two, and verse twenty-two, chapter twenty-two. Men and brethren and fathers, hear ye my defence, which I now, which I make now unto you. When they had heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence. Paul begins by telling the people that he wishes to make a defense to the accusations leveled against him. He uses men, brethren, fathers, recognizing both those who are his peer and those who are uh, elders. He uses their own language. He doesn't use Greek. And by using Hebrew, Aramaic, he has effectively denied the allegation against him as being one who would bring a Greek, a Gentile, into the temple. He has perhaps even separated himself by language from the Asian Jews who had brought this accusation against him, who may in fact not have been able to speak Hebrew or Aramaic as probable Hellenistic Jews. Luke puts emphasis on this fact, this choice of language of Paul, emphasizing that when he used this language and people heard this language, the, the hush became deeper. Paul deftly moves from speaking Greek to the tribune to speaking Aramaic to the crowd. And he begins his defense by connecting himself with the crowd. Look at verse 3. I am verily a man which am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect matter of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. He doesn't contradict what he said to the tribune, but goes beyond what he said to the tribune. To the tribune he said, I am a a citizen of Tarsus from the region of Cilicia. Here he says, yes, I am a Jew. I am from Tarsus. I am from Cilicia, but I grew up here. I was educated here. Not only was I educated here in Jerusalem, I was educated by the most reputable teacher of the law that you can imagine. Amaliel had such a high regard in that day and age. He is uh, so educated about the law and so zealous about the law. And he connects it to the people, as you all are. He is saying to the Jews, I'm not really, almost, I'm not blaming you for this riot. I understand your zeal. I understand your passion because I have it too. But that generates a question, how can such a one be accused of desecrating the temple? More, Paul reflects on his past persecution of the church. Look at verse 4, And I persecuted this way into death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Unflinchingly, he mentions death, that he persecutes to the point of death those of the way, those who were Christians, and indiscriminately, both men and women. So passionate was his zeal that he acts so strongly. He is such a defender of Judaism, the worship of the God of Abraham, to think that he would be one accused of desecrating the temple, considering uh, who who he learned under, his own zeal, the evidence of his zeal in his persecution of the church. It seems far and away improbable that he would do such a thing. And for his zeal, he calls upon the highest authority in Jerusalem. Look at verse 4. And uh, verse 5. And also the high priest doth bear witness and all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound to Jerusalem for to be punished. He says, if you want evidence, if you want witnesses of how zealous I was for the way, you have only to ask the high priest and the elders of Israel. They were the ones who gave me letters to go to Damascus and arrest those who are of this way and bring them to Jerusalem for punishment. Surely no one so reputable, no one so affirmed could have fallen so far as to desecrate the temple. Instead, he is worthy of a hearing at least. I find it... Interesting how Paul deftly moves from persuading the Roman authorities to persuading the Jews. His ability to speak multiple languages doesn't suggest that all God's people ought to be bilingual, at least not the way we think. However, this change of pattern between how Paul speaks to the Romans and the Jews reminds us that speaking to people often requires understanding one of the fundamental rules of communication. Our communication only deserves that name if others understand the message, if we're speaking their language, and not just the language uh, as we think about language, but words they can understand, making and drawing and finding common ground. This idea of communication that others understand is not an easy thing to verify because people will claim to misunderstand in order to avoid the consequences of the message. I don't understand the gospel, they say. Well, maybe they actually do understand the gospel. They just don't like the fact that it calls uh, them to do something. On the other hand, people will claim to understand so that they can end the conversation. I understand what you're saying, but I do am not interested. Paul shows us that we often must begin with finding a common ground, a shared set of assumptions and perspectives, as he does with both uh, the Romans and the Jews. So the Romans, he says, I am a citizen. He uses that specific word because that's a key buzzword in Roman ideology. To the Jews, he says, I am zealous for the law, just like you. We often begin earning people's attention rather than demanding it. We often begin the message of the gospel by finding common ground. It requires true engagement in the lives of others, knowing where we can find this common foundation to build upon. We see Paul's condition before we see Paul's conversion in the next section. Paul continues his defense by turning to the reason he stands in chains upon the steps of the fortress. He takes his audience to the road to Damascus. He tells them what happened on the road and what happened after the road. On his way to Damascus... As an agent of the high priests and elders on mission to arrest and return the Christians, God, Paul, meets with someone unexpected. Look at verse 6, And it came to pass that as I made my journey, and was come nigh to Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Here's Paul as he is going uh, to Damascus. We have a name change here as we hear his old name brought out again. He's going to Damascus and at noon, around noon, when the sun is at its zenith, the most bright time of day, a greater sun comes upon Paul. And Paul hears a voice accusing him of persecuting the wrong people. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That word, that name that is a part of his old life, that word, that name that is connected to the first king of Israel and uh, Paul's own tribe of Benjamin. Imagine this audience, this Jewish audience, hearing this story for the first time. A heavenly light has descended upon Paul. Paul, uh, someone who is well-educated, approved by religious leaders, zealous for the true worship of the Lord. This heavenly light, which usually betokens God's special act of providence to the prophet. And yet, instead of a commissioning voice, go and tell my people X, Y, and Z, go and tell my people, thus saith the Lord, and a message for the people. Instead of that, Paul says, there comes this command of condemnation, a sudden accusation of sin. What has this man done? He has done everything that's right. The high priest and the elders have commissioned him to go to Damascus. What can probably possibly be the problem with this one who has all of these uh, credentials? Bated breath waits for the unraveling of the mystery, and the resolution falls like thunder in verse 8. And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus, whom of Nazareth. Whom thou persecutest, Jesus, the executed one, now speaks from heaven as the risen Lord. This falls like thunder to this Jewish crowd as they they hear this appalling news that the one who has gone to Damascus to persecute the followers of Jesus now, from the heavens, hears Jesus' voice as the exalted risen Lord. Now they could have said, well, Paul, that was just, you know, you had a little bit of a, uh, we call it sunstroke. You had a little bit of a a mental breakdown there on the road of Damascus. And Paul says, no, that that doesn't work. Verse 9, and they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. Paul saying, I didn't have a little mental breakdown on the road to Damascus, guys, because there are people that you can talk to and witnesses who were with me at the time who said that they saw the light and they were afraid, even though they didn't hear the voice. Paul continues his story in verse 10, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go to Damascus, and it shall be told thee of all the things which are appointed for thee to do. Paul recognizes that something must change. The Lord has spoken from heaven. The Lord has revealed that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He cannot continue in the way that he has gone to persecute God and his chosen one. He must change his behavior, but he doesn't know what to do. Is he to continue? Is he to go back? What is, how is he to proceed? And Jesus tells him to continue his journey and await instructions. There's just one problem with that course. Paul can't see. Look at verse 11. And when I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came to Damascus. Here again, he's calling upon witnesses. These witnesses who are with them saw the light. They felt the fear. They recognized that Paul had been blinded when before he can see, now he can't, so that they have to bring him into, into Damascus. And in Damascus, the Lord sends a messenger to Paul. Look at verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there. Paul provides the credentials for this divine messenger. He is righteous, and the divine cause of his healing, to Paul, of Paul's blindness. This one who comes to him is uh, reputable. Again, Paul is calling upon the evidence that it can be levied against Ananias. This wasn't a, a bad guy. He brings Paul healing. Look at verse 13. He came unto me and stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. In the same hour I looked up upon him. I was blind, but now I see, Paul can say. The physical healing befits a spiritual change in Paul that Paul sees in his own life. In his physical change from being blind on the road to Damascus to being able to see He sees his own blind zeal against those of the way, against Jesus and his disciples. He sees his own blind zeal reflected in his audience to whom he is speaking. And he is saying to them that there is a way to sight. This clearness of sight appears in Ananias' word to Paul, connecting the way of Christ with the historic worship of God. Look at verse 14, and he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee. That thou shouldest know his will and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. Ananias said, "The one that you saw on the road is not a new way. It is not a different God. It is the God of our fathers. It is the God of our fathers who have chosen this just one. That is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, not a repudiation of everything you knew of the law, but a reunderstanding of everything you knew in the law, in light of the Messiah who God has sent. Jesus is the just one, the Lord, the one the Lord sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and forgiveness of sins. Paul will hear his voice, for thou shalt be verse 15, thou shalt be His witness. Unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. The Lord will send Paul as a witness to this fact, a witness of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, and a witness to all kinds of people. But Paul still needs the mark of repentance. Look at verse 16. Why, and now, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sin, calling on the name of the Lord. This conversion is followed by the visible change of allegiance. And the acknowledgement of past sin. There's something uh, potent about this statement that Paul is making to these Jews because they understand the point of baptism. This is not too long after uh, they have understood the baptism of John, the preparation for the coming of, of the Messiah, the need to wash away sin. Paul tells them that in order to show this in order to show that the Lord God sees the persecution of the church, of His church, as a sin that needs cleansing. That this washing takes place outside the ordinary structure of Old Testament worship does not mean it's unnecessary. It is necessary. It also means that God's people are not just identified by ethnicity, but by obedience and repentance. In this story, Paul implies that his audience needs to undergo the same process. Like him, they show zeal for the cause of Old Testament worship. Like him, they hate the way. Like him, they are blind, and like him, they need to see. And so we are all born blind, or more accurately, we are born shutting our eyes against the truth. We are like little children who think that if we cover our eyes, the things that we don't want to see won't exist. And we hate the truth because of what it says about us, because it says that we stand condemned before God's bar of judgment, because the reality is we do do indeed deserve death and hell. And this is not a fact that is external to us. It is something that we know deep down in our hearts to be true, and that knowledge disturbs us, which is why we, apart from Christ, preferred the darkness to the light. But it is only the the light that can bring life. For what we deserve only tells us half the truth. We deserve death, but God chose to save those who deserved death and hell. And he made the way through Jesus, who is God-made man. And that is why Paul could call him Lord on the road to Damascus. Jesus lived a sinless life and died innocently. He died not for his own sin, but for the sin of his people. And he gives them his perfect life to purchase heaven for them. And he offers himself to you today. Will you remove your hands from your eyes that you may see? Will you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Will you repent and believe the gospel of Jesus today? Christian, we call people to take their hands off their eyes and to see the truth of the gospel, but they only do so if God moves them to it. Paul's transition from sight to blindness to sight reveals this effect, that it is only God that enables people to recognize their blindness, and it is only God who enables people to see. And not only happened physically, but spiritually as well. It reminds us that we cannot force conversions. We can only do what Paul is doing, bear witness to the truth of the gospel. And we might criticize Paul. Paul, you're speaking a lot about yourself and not too much about Jesus. But our experience has a place in the message of the gospel. For the message of the gospel is about Jesus. And you can t- clearly tell that Jesus is the star in Paul's story. That is he is our starting point and our main message. It is he is what people must believe to be saved. And we bear witness, our story matters because we bear witness to the effect of Jesus in ourselves, evidence that is true and parallel to the unimpeachable testimony of God's Word. When we think about our experience and the message of the gospel, it is not an either or, and it's not really a both end, but a primary and secondary, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, His story is primary in our message of the salvation, and our experience is Secondary. So let us be willing to tell our story after pointing people to Christ. We see Paul's condition and his conversion, but finally his calling. Paul ends in what is I think is somewhat a baffling personal story. I find it baffling, and I think many people find it baffling because of its effect. It causes the audience to rise in protest and violence again. Did Paul make a mistake in his testimony? We cannot make that claim based upon the results alone. We are tempted to do that because we might might be tempted to think Paul goofed here because the people get upset again, uh, but that's not necessarily the case. We must examine the statement in terms of Paul's logic and God's love. Paul skips a bit in the story again that Luke records to, to get to Jerusalem. He doesn't talk about his... Uh, Teaching in Damascus, he doesn't talk about his Arabian uh, steps. He goes straight, skips about two years uh, from what Paul tells us in Galatians to get to Jerusalem. He gets to the temple. He wants to draw people's attention to what is going on right there in that same place. In verse 17, And it came to pass when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. As he makes this statement, he is demonstrating his fidelity to the temple. He is countering the accusation that he would desecrate the temple. When he was using the temple for its proper purpose, he was there in the temple. He was praying. He was praying, and there in the temple, as they all of his audience were probably doing that same day, there in that holy place, the Lord speaks to him, even as he did to the prophets. Paul's next words are rather challenging to his audience. Look at verse 7, And I saw him saying unto me, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. Who is him? It can be none other than Jesus. Paul sees Jesus. Before it was a light and a voice on the road to Damascus, That Before, he was blind and could not see the Savior. Now, in the temple, in this holy place, he sees the Lord. He sees the risen Christ. And what does the Lord say? It is rather shocking. Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. Jesus says to Paul, get out of Dodge. It's time to leave. The people of Jerusalem will not... Listen to you. And Paul finds this shocking. He says in verse 19, And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. Paul lists every possible reason that he believes his fellow Israelites would have for listening to and believing the gospel through his testimony. Lord, they know what I was like. They know what I was like. They know the attitude I have. And to see such a turnaround in my life must be persuasive to them. They must... They, They ought to think if such a man who knows so much about the law, educated by Gamaliel, such a passion for the law, such a passion for uh, the Old Testament rituals and the worship of the one true God, if me, if I could be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, certainly he must be. They have every reason to believe through my word. But the Lord knows better than Paul how conversion works. Look at verse 21. He said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Now what happens immediately after he mentions the Gentiles? Look at verse 22. And and they gave him audience unto this word, and then they lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth it is not fit that he should live. He mentions the Gentiles, the very point of their problem, the very point of their accusation that he had brought Gentiles into the temple and desecrated it. It seems like a rookie move to poke the bear, having built up such a stock of goodwill with the people, with his audience. But I think Paul has something more significant on his mind. I don't think he has made a mistake. I think he has done exactly what he intended to and exactly what... is at the point of this audience's need. It seems he needs to move the audience to a broader vision of God's love beyond the narrow confines of Israel, and in doing so, he is doing nothing less than applying the Old Testament to their condition. He isn't inventing this concept of God's love himself. He gets it from the Old Testament. In Isaiah we read, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand, for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest will be glorious. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lift up my hands to the Gentiles. that Lifting up the hands is not lifting up a hand to smite them, but it's a word of swearing. I swear to the Gentiles and set up my standard of the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon thy shoulders. O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth. From the rising of the sun even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place that is incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. That's Isaiah eleven, ten, forty two, six, forty nine, twenty two, Jeremiah sixteen, nineteen, Malachi one, eleven. You can look at also Isaiah sixty verse three, verse five, and verse eleven. Note all. Note especially here, Isaiah 66:19, and I will set up a sign among them, and I will send those that escape unto them, to, unto the nations, to Tarshish, to Pud, to Lud, that draw the bow, to Tubal, to Javan, to the isles afar off, that have not heard my fame, neither seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Here in Isaiah 66:19, 19, the Lord says, I will send my people to declare my glory among the Gentiles. Paul was not putting in the mouth of Jesus anything other than what already existed in the Old Testament. He is saying that the promise of God made in the Old Testament that would expand the covenant people to include the Gentiles has come to pass in Jesus and instead of receiving the news with joy, as the elders of, Israel, of the Jerusalem church did, the people respond with fatal hate. Because they cannot countenance that the mercy of God would go to the Gentiles. Who is it that we put into the category of the unlovable? In his book, How to Think, Alan Jacobs uses the category of the repugnant cultural other or as he likes to shorten it, the RCO. In Paul's day, his audience had placed the category into the, the Gentiles into the category of the repugnant cultural other. They were they were different than them. They were culturally different from them, and they found that culture and that difference repugnant. Today, people often shape these categories of the the, the repugnant cultural other in terms of belief rather than ethnicity and litmus tests of uh, whether you're a good person or a bad person based upon uh, various social causes. It appears at the heart of modern-day cancel culture, and we uh, kind of get upset about that, but Christians cannot assume a moral high ground in this matter because we invented the process. The repugnant cultural other is part of our historic DNA because right at the beginning of the church, the Jew-Gentile divide was a problem. Some think that we deal with this by compromising on the truth. Well, that we cannot do. We cannot minimize uh, the truth. We, cannot, but we also cannot minimize the power and love of God. The worst sinner, the most repugnant influencer, the most inept worker, the most rabid atheist does not deserve any less of our love or compassion or the offer of the gospel. Fanny Crosby's song reminds us that the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus forgiveness receives. Now, we like to love those who we categorize as the repugnant cultural other from a distance. We like to love them when they are far away. We can claim we love them and not speak of them very harshly, but it's very different. It's very harder when we have to deal with them face to face. And there is a reason why Jacob uses this term repugnant, that we can find their behavior, their beliefs, their speech repugnant and unnatural and offensive. And there's only one thing that can enable us to interact with him in a biblical way. We must remember how repugnant our sin is to God. We must remember his love toward us see, Paul there on those steps reaches out to those whose attitude against the Gentiles he must find absolutely repugnant. Here is the apostle to the Gentiles trying to convince these Jews who seem to be rabidly Gentile haters to exp- exp- expand their love and their view, to see the promises of God for them. He tells the story, he anchors in the love of God for his persecutor. When Paul tells the story to these people, he understands, he is able to do that because he recognizes, even in the midst of the story, that he was once them. Paul will later in 1 Corinthians talk about the history of those who are in the church, Be not deceived, my brothers, neither fornicators nor idolaters. No, he goes through a list of repugnant activities and practices, and he ends with, and such were some of you. How can Paul not love who he once was? How can he not reach out and call them to repentance and faith? How can he not believe that God can save them just as he saved himself? Also, too, how can we not reach out to those who are sinners and call them to repent and believe the gospel? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our hearts are humble before you as we confess our own sin and our sin of lovelessness. And so we come to you asking that you would remind us again of your unconditional love, for you chose us when we were unlovely, and you when we were blind, opened our eyes. Help us to communicate well by finding a ground upon which we can connect to others, that we may show them the message of Jesus. Strengthen our hands to this labor, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.